0: Said that he was out in new mexico or out in nevada somewhere in the desert and the lord appeared to him and made him an apostle and he came back to nashville asked the elder to resign and he's the apostle there and he led the opening prayer and then one of the founders of this organization got up and uh, said that uh, this apostle was his hero but i want to read to you some of the statements that have been taken from sermons of those men at jubilee and men who appear in the program number one just listen to these statements I don't go around the country preaching against mechanical instruments of music. Well, of course, you know what that would mean, that I just don't condemn that. Even though the Bible teaches to sing, I don't say anything about that. Number two, that uh, another one said, we do not contribute one whit to our salvation. That's one of the main features of the Jubilee speaking. Another statement that's made, under grace, you can only be justified by faith. Our salvation arises entirely and only from grace, not by one act of duty, nor by one deed of obedience, nor by one religious thing we do. It is entirely of grace through faith. Those are the belief of some of the men that speak at Jubilee. Number four, obeying uh, love does not, uh, obeying laws does not put a person into the kingdom of God. In other words, obeying the gospel has nothing to do with putting man in the kingdom of God. The law has nothing to do with it. And uh, number five, a statement made by one of the speakers, I reject pattern theology. That is the statement that God gave to Moses when he built the tabernacle, see that thou doest all things according to the pattern. He said, I reject teaching like that. There's no such thing as pattern theology. Number six, I'm not sure, there's another statement made, I'm not sure there's any, in any sense in which the law of Moses has been abrogated. That is, we're still under the Old Testament law. Number seven, I don't know if this will blow your mind or not. Then I'm quoting this, what one of the speakers said. I do not know if this will blow your mind or not, but the more conservative the churches are, the more incest you have in the families. You think about a man of God making a statement like that. That's a blasphemous statement for a man to make a statement to be conservative that he says there's more incest among families like that. Number eight, let's not limit this another quotation from a speaker, let's not limit the kingdom of God to the size of our brotherhood. Well, any intelligent person can read that statement. That just includes all. And, and recently I talked to a man that spoke at Jubilee, and I asked him, I said, J- just tell me, the, the, the bottom line, what do you believe? He said, the bottom line is, I believe that Christians in all churches, that is, the Church of Christ is just like any, like any other Protestant organization or denomination. And that's, uh, that's a belief of many of these men. Number nine, another thing, the Bible is a love letter as opposed to a blueprint. For me, for years, Christianity was a moral code. It is now becoming a love letter. For years, there were rules and regulations. Now it's a relationship. No rules, no regulations. Just relationship with God. Number ten. I'd like to give you a word. Now, this is one of the men who spoke at uh, at Jubilee. He was a, uh, advertised a featured speaker, and. Uh, I have a tape of the sermon that he preached on the radio. And he said in his closing remarks that I want you to give your life to God. All you have to do is to just say, here, I am God. I give you my heart. I give you my trouble. I give you my disappointments. I give you my life. And he says, that's the prayer you need to pray. And then the announcer came on and announced the program. And then the preacher came back on the air and said, now, to those of you who've been saved, I want to say a few more words to you and I, and this is what he said I'd like to give you a word about the next step or two I want to encourage you to find a church I want you to I want to encourage you to be baptized I want to encourage you to read your bible but I don't want you to do any of these things so that you will be saved I want you to do all of these things because you are saved now, that's the kind of preachers that they have at Jubilee. Now, and, in, and if, Well, somebody might say there's some preachers there that don't believe it, but they, they would have to endorse it wouldn't be up there with, with that group, that group of people, associating with a group of false teachers. And so that's the Jubilee thing, and if you want to know more about it, here's something to tell you all about it. But I'm just giving you some facts why I do not endorse what they call the Jubilee, and I and it's one of the great threats of the Lord's Church, and the good news I've heard that seems to be official that there will not be a Jubilee next year. And I hope that is true. But in just a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you. I want you to keep these things in mind now for the next few minutes. I'm going to talk to you about the New Testament church. And I want you to think about what the Bible says about these things that I've just read to you. So now then, we'll say a few words about this organization known as Promise Keepers. And I might state at this point that many of our brethren, many preachers have joined in this, proper, uh, this promise keeper's business. And it sounds good. Just like Jubilee sounds good. And I say there isn't anything wrong with having a crowd of people. I've already had 25,000 here tonight. Well, well somebody said, so what do you have against a Jubilee? False teaching. That's just it. Just false teaching. An effort to destroy the church of Christ as we know it today. They call it restructuring the church. What does that mean by restructuring? They mean to destroy it as it is known today. That our children, our grandchildren will not know the church of Christ as we know it today. But it will endorse all of these denominational fears. To teach our children and grandchildren that the church for which Jesus Christ died is just another denomination in this world among the hundreds of others. Now, I'm going to read you a few statements about the Promise Keepers. And let me state in the very beginning that the Promise Keepers, I have no objection to that title. I think it's a wonderful title. I think man should keep his promise. Promises he makes to God. Promise he makes to his wife. Promise he makes to her husband. Promise he to make to the parents. Promise we make to the banker. Promise we make to people. That I believe in promise keeping. We should keep the promises that we make. Well, somebody says, what's wrong with getting people together and teach them to, to have to be better husbands? Not a thing in this world wrong with that. What's wrong with teaching, getting people together, a group of men together and telling them you ought to be better husbands? You ought to be better fathers. You ought to be more concerned about your... Not a thing in the world's wrong with that that's the pretext that's the advertising part of it and I wish I had time to read all this to you but I don't have time to read all of it but let me say this to you this is written by Claude Gardner a faithful gospel preacher president of Fried Hardeman University for many many years and I'll not read the entire article because it takes too long but I want to read to you some of the things that take place you know they deny if you talk to these promise givers oh no it's not a religious meeting it is a religious meeting of course it is a religious meeting. Let me read it to you. They're talking about here, it says, Coach Bill McCartney, founder of the Promise Keepers, wrote, We're living in, exh- in exhilarating times when masses of men across the country gathering by thousands to worship Jesus Christ and learning what it is to be godly men. Here's some quotes about the year, year review. This is a review they gave of the year of, of 1995. Uh, then at, at Pontiac, Silver Dome, April 28th and the 29th, amazing 7,000 men responded to the sermon, the invitation that night, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and His Savior. Wouldn't you call that a religious meeting where they sing, they pray, they teach, they extend an invitation, people come down to the altar and they claim they get saved. It's just a, it, it is a, a interdenominational meeting of trying to get all religious people together and to say we're all one in Christ regardless of what we believe, regardless of how we live. And that's contrary to our principle taught in the Word of God. But somebody says, what do they believe? This is taken from their own books now, written by Claude Gardner, from the above documented statements, what are their doctrinal beliefs? Listen to this. It is a religious movement that encompasses all denominations. It is all denominational rather than non denominational. It is ecumenical. Acceptance of many churches is an inherent belief rather than the one body. The plan of salvation is faith only and coming to God by prayer at the altar. The special empowerment is a a mysterious and miraculous way in giving to the Holy Spirit or the giving of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. It is loaded with emphasis upon emotionalism and experimental religion. This is not spirituality in the New Testament sense. Now, listen to the things that they teach. Those who promote and participate must necessarily reject the following teaching: baptism for the remission of sins. They reject that because they teach that man is saved by faith only. When they come to the altar, they don't say the only thing they have to do is say they believe Jesus Christ, Son of God, and that's it. And uh, Number two, obeying the gospel rather than praying f- through uh, through to salvation. They reject the plan of obeying the gospel. They teach it just simply praying through. Three, instead of depending upon thus saith the Lord, they depend upon their feelings. Number four, instead of the Bible being the only guide, they depend upon the direct operation of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, Next, the church of the New Testament is Christ one body rather than the believing in the church of your choice, as they teach the church of your choice. That's the same thing that's conducted Billy Graham's campaigns. And uh, there isn't any difference in the promise keepers' meetings in a meeting of Billy Graham because they preach, they sing, they pray. And the only difference is they take up the collection before you get there. You pay your fee in order to come. And it tells here how many millions of dollars they take in every year in their organization. So they do all of these things. And then they extend the invitation, and people come down to the altar, and it disturbs me when some member of the church tries to justify such stuff as that. It just disturbs me when members of the church begin to teach that man is saved by faith only. You don't obey the laws of God. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, and miraculously you are saved. And you're saved by grace and grace only. And they say you're saved by faith and faith only. Well, if it's grace only, it eliminates grace. If it's grace only, it eliminates faith. And now then, if you have a pencil, I'm going to give you the address where you get all this information. If you'd like to have it, as I stated, they'll be glad to send it to you, free of charge. And let me state to this, they stated everything in here is documented. That is, they give you the occasion where it was said. If it's in a book, they give you the book and also the page of the on, in that book. And this is where you can order, order that, this material. The East Hill Church of Christ. 509 Madison M-A-D-I-S-O-N Post office box 329 You wouldn't need that 509 East Madison to with the box number there. Pulaska, Tennessee P-U-L-A-S-K-I Pulaska, Tennessee 38478 So if there's anything you doubt I just challenge you to get the material and read for yourself. Both of these things are... are, are whereas in both places, false doctrine is taught. And that primarily is what's wrong with both of them. Just the false doctrine is taught. Now then, after these things I've read to you about the promise keepers and what I've read to you about the Jubilee, now then, I want to read to you from the Bible. And I want you to listen carefully. Now keep in mind what we've read from these people. All these were documented statements that I read. Now keep... We'll begin first... In Isaiah, the 30th chapter, and verse 10, who say to the seers, see, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. People like to be fooled. It's disturbing, but it's true. People enjoy being fooled. You enjoy watch, watch, watching magicians? Oh yes, we all like to watch magicians. Why? Because they're fooling us. They're deceiving us. It looks real, but it's not real. People have always liked to be fooled. But can you, can you conceive in the days of Isaiah that they were sending the prophets? Don't prophesy the truth to us. Prophesy lies to us. Prophesy deceits to us. That's what the people wanted. In Jeremiah the sixth chapter and verse 16, Jeremiah said, Seek ye the old paths and walk therein. And you shall find rest in your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. And we're living in an age when that very rebellious attitude is being manifested today by many members of the church of Christ. We will not walk therein. And then in Matthew, the 7th chapter, verse 15, Jesus Christ said, Beware of false prophets that are coming to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are raving wolves. In Matthew, the 20th chapter, beginning of the verse 28. In Acts, the 20th chapter, beginning of the verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of the Lord, which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, grievous wool shall enter among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And remember... That by the space of three years I've warned you night and day with tears. That's how concerned Paul was over people departing from the truth of God. That's how concerned Paul was over false doctrine. And now then in first Timothy the fourth chapter, verses one and two. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter days, that's the age which we live, in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of the devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and their conscience seared with a hot iron. That is, it doesn't faze them to deny deny God's Word. It doesn't faze them to teach faith only. It doesn't faze them to deny baptism. It doesn't faze them to deny the church of Jesus Christ because their conscience has been seared. And when an individual ceases to love the truth, then God sends that man a strong delusion, lets that man believe a lie, and then damn his soul for believing the lie because the man was not honest and sincere to begin with. It's a dangerous thing, my friends, to cease to love the truth. You can put that down on any particular subject. In Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, beginning with verse one, the Apostle Paul said, "I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead, his appearing, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. For the time will come." When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall be turned away from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Well, what's a fable? That's a fairy tale. That's just an interesting story. But Paul says they want that instead of wanting the truth of God. Do these warnings mean anything to us? Have we just completely ignored all of these scriptures I've read in Second Peter the second chapter verse verses one and two? As there were false prophets among them, there shall all be, also be false teachers among you, who shall secretly bring in their damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall be followers of their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. So Peter says at the time has come. they'll not only, not only teach error, they'll speak evil of the truth of God. They'll not only deny the, God of God, the word of God, they'll speak evil of the word of God. And we're living in that very age. And it disturbs me that when someone can come into a congregation of God's people who are supposed to be converted Christians and, and teach these heresies, doing the very thing that Paul warned against, and then people embrace that and believe that. So that... Now, I want to read to you some other scriptures. And listen to me carefully. In Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that He in all things might have the preeminence. The church of the New Testament is the most glorious institution in all the world. All institutions organized for the elevation of mankind must stand back aghast in the hour of death unable to breach the chasm. Here the church of our Lord comes to the rescue, he erects her banner on the other side of the grave, and on this banner is written in letters of gold, cross over through me. Where men were once in a fog of confusion due to sectarian bitterness and strife, Man is in a denser fog today, produced by theories, philosophies, and confusions confounded. Hundreds of cults, social uplift schemes, rabid atheistic propaganda, thrust themselves upon the scene until many despair of ever learning the truth. And thus they turn to cynic indifference and fill their lives with worldly pleasures. If there was ever a time when we need to emphasize the plain, simple teachings of the New Testament, that time is now. People are weary of confusion, division, sectarianism, denominationalism, but they endure these things because they've never understood the truths of God's eternal word. Therefore, there's resting upon those of us who've embraced these truths the grave responsibility of making them known to a lost and dying world. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born, the prophets of God wrote about Christ. They prophesied about Christ. Hundreds of years before Christ was born, the prophets of God, with the fire tongues of oratory, talked about the church which Jesus Christ would establish upon this earth. In Daniel, the second chapter, and verse 44, we read these words in the days of these kings the God of heaven shall set up a kingdom, it shall break into pieces all other kingdoms. It shall not be left to other people, but it, and it shall never be destroyed, and it shall stand forever. That's what one of the prophets of God said about the church that would be established by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the church we read about in the New Testament. In Isaiah, the second chapter, beginning in verse 2, Isaiah said, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mount of the Lord's house, shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And the people will go and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of His ways. We will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then years later, John the Baptist came on the scene in Matthew the 3rd chapter, beginning of verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom? The kingdom that their parents, their grandparents, their great-great-great-grandparents have been talking about. John said that time is almost here when that kingdom is going to be set up. Now you think about this reading in view of what I read to you tonight about these false teachers. And then shortly after John uttered those, those words, read this time in Matthew the 16th chapter, beginning with verse 13 that when Jesus Christ came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say, I, the Son of Man, am? They answered him, saying, Some say there are John the Baptist, some Elias, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's interesting to observe at this point that not one of them confessed the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's true that Jesus Christ was like John the Baptist in so many ways, but John the Baptist was not a divine person. Jesus Christ was like Elijah in so many ways, but Elijah was not a divine person. Jesus Christ was like all those prophets in many ways, but those prophets were not divine beings. So no one at this point confessed his divinity. They just said that people are saying that you're like these men that I've just mentioned. It may have been for this reason that Jesus Christ, yes, then who do you say that I am? In other words, did they convince you that I'm John the Baptist when you're not in my presence? Do you refer to me as John the Baptist or Elijah or one of those prophets? Who do you say that I am? And the apostle Peter said, <coughs> Thou art the Christ, <coughs> the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And therefore I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then shortly after Jesus Christ uttered these words, telling his disciples he was going to build his church, this time we turn to Acts the second chapter and begin reading with verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared on them cloven tongues, like as a fire. And it sat up on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when thus was noised abroad, the multitude came together. Now it was on this day, that is, the first Pentecost, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that the church of the New Testament was set up, firmly fixed, and about 3,000 people became members of the Lord's church that day. Now that's the church that we read about in the New Testament. And I stay to you as kind as I know how. If a man should live to be as old as Methuselah and read the New Testament through every few days, that's the only church that you can ever read about in this Bible is the one that Jesus Christ purchased with His blood. Now let me ask you, what's wrong with teaching people these truths? That's the Bible truth. That's God's eternal truth. That's the church of the New Testament. And so, when we talk about that, somebody may ask, what do you mean by the church of New Testament? Well, we're talking about The one who built this church. Who built the church? Well, it is my church. I didn't build it, and you didn't build it. Well, whose church is it then? Well, it's the Church of Jesus Christ. He's the head of it, He's the founder of it, He's the establisher of it, and He's the Savior of it. Jesus Christ. That's the one. Now in in Matthew, if you have your Bible on your turn with me to Matthew, the fifteenth chapter. If there's a Bible in the pew in front of you, I want you to get it and read this. Because years ago, from the year of 1945 to the year of 1965, the Church of our Lord was making its greatest growth during this time. And in fact, the Church of Christ was one of the fastest, if not the fastest religious growing body in America. And back in those days, very seldom a preacher preaching a gospel meeting without discussing these verses that I want you to look at tonight. Look to verses 8 and 9. First, let us look to verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now, there are two or three things we'll learn about this reading. Number one, something's going to be rooted up. Because Jesus Christ plainly said, Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Now, you're intelligent people. I just want to pause for a minute and let you think. Now, wh- what is this going to be rooted up? Now, just think for a moment. What's he talking about? He says something God is going to root up. What is it? He says it's every plant. What plant? Every plant that my Heavenly Father did not plant is going to be rooted up. Now, I know what he's talking about. Well, somebody says, how can you be so sure that you know what he's talking about? Well, one of the rules of interpretation is this. If we don't understand the verse, read the verse before and the verse after. And if we don't understand it, then we'll read the entire chapter. If we don't understand it, then we'll read the entire book. And then all probability, we have an understanding of that verse when we get all the context. So I know what Jesus is talking about. Somebody says, how do you know? I know by the context. Now notice verses 8 and 9. Notice what it says. This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth, their honor me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. Now notice verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of man and just a sentence to below that he says and every plant that my heavenly father not planted shall be rooted up I know what he's talking about he's talking about religious orders that are started and founded and established by man in opposition to the one we read about in the New Testament and that's one of the things that's wrong with this thing they're called Jubilee it's because of false teachers who are trying to destroy the church for which Jesus Christ died that's what makes it wrong it doesn't, a man doesn't have to read an encyclopedia, a book or two, just that alone is wrong. Just just teaching error, that's the thing that's wrong with it. Not the crowd, not the name. Same thing with promise keepers. Why, you you you, you go to the most outrageous religious people in the world asking, do you believe we ought to have better fathers? Well, would say yes. I believe that, you believe that. We all believe we ought to be better fathers. But that doesn't mean to say to be better fathers that we destroy the truths of God. That's what we must learn so I state to you as kind as I know how the church read about in the New Testament is the one that Jesus Christ built. It's the one He gave His blood for. It's the one that He's the head of. He's the founder of it. He's the establisher of it. And He's the Savior of it. Now let me ask you this. Why would any person resent that if he believed in the inspiration of the New Testament? Because I've just read to you what it plainly says. So Jesus Christ is the established and founder of the church. But the next question is, what's the advantage of being in the church? Are there any advantages to it? Well, let me read you some. In Ephesians, the first chapter, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I think this verse is misunderstood many times by members of the church. How many times have you heard a person talk like this? You know, here's a man out here in the world. He doesn't even pretend to believe in God. He says he's an atheist. And yet that man prospers physically. He prospers socially. He prospers financially. And every time God sends rain from heaven, He sends it on His crop as well as He does on my crop. And God sends a sunshine on on the saint and the sinners. Of course that's true. And listen to me carefully now, lest I be misunderstood. The Bible does not teach that all blessings are in Christ. Everybody enjoys the blessings of God. Even the time a man goes to the bank to rob a bank, he's enjoying the blessings of God. The very air that he breathes is a blessing from God. And if God should cut off the air, he'd die immediately. Everybody enjoys the blessings of God. And Paul did not say that all blessings are in God. All blessings are not in God. All blessings are not in Christ. All blessings are not in the church. Now let us read it like it, like it is. Notice what it says. That all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is a peculiar blessing. There's a certain kind of blessing that can be found only in Christ Jesus. What is it? Physical, material, social? No, no. This blessing that can be found only in Christ Jesus is a spiritual blessing. Now then, outside of Christ, there are no spiritual blessings because the Apostle said all spiritual blessings are in Christ. In Second Corinthians fifth, chapter verse seventeen, list of Paul. He says, Therefore, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If what? If he be in Christ, he's a new creature. As far as I know, the whole religious world teaches that one has become a new creature, to become a child of God. In other words, Christianity consists of putting off and putting on. We put on the put off the old man and put on the new man we put off the bad habits and put on the good habits we put off the bad character and put on the good character we put on the bad living unfaithful living and put on the faithful living christianity consists constantly of putting off and putting on and paul said we put off the old man and we put on the new man in christ jesus that's where we put the new man on it's in christ and romans 8 chapter verse 1 listen to paul I want you to turn there and read this verse with me. Because it's a statement that many, 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 brethren misunderstand. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those in Christ. Now let us stop there and put a period. It's not in the Bible, but just for sake of emphasis. What does Paul say? There is no condemnation in Christ. In other words, he's saying there is a place where there's no condemnation. There's a place of refuge. There's a place of safety. There's a place where a man can go that he'll never be condemned. But where is this place? Listen to it. Therefore, if a man be in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Years ago, When debates were popular, sometimes the opponent of the truth would say that this is a terrible religion. You people practice you teach you saved at o'clock in the morning, lost at nine, saved at ten, lost at eleven, saved early in the afternoon, lost late, lost late in the afternoon. And then he you says, your religion is just like a yo-yo going up, and one hour you're saved, the other hour you're lost. I state to you with all power of my being, that's a teaching of Satan. The Bible does teach a thing like that. Why the Apostle Paul says, if a man is in Christ and walking after the Spirit, there is no condemnation resting upon him. Will this man fall? No, a thousand times no, as long as he walks after the Spirit, but if he ceases to walk after the Spirit and begins to walk after the flesh well naturally he'll die and lose his soul in a devil's hell but Paul's not talking about that man Paul is writing these brethren at Rome to impress upon their minds what a wonderful thing it is in Christ and what it means to be in Christ and he says if you're in Christ and you're walking after the Spirit there's no condemnation resting upon you that's one of the most consoling verses in the Bible the a faithful child of God you no know, as long as a man is in Christ as long as he's walking after that spirit, no, he'll never fall. But I repeat, lest I be misunderstood, if he ceases to walk after the spirit and begins to live after the place will naturally and naturally be lost. But I repeat, Paul's not talking about that man. Paul is talking to these Christians to tell them what a wonderful thing it is to be in Christ Jesus where there's no condemnation. And then in the conclusion, had you ever thought about the cost of the church? Have you just sat down and asked yourself the question, What did this church cost? Again, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me. And I want you to write these verses down, or either, if you don't have your Bible, mark them in your mind so that you can remember them. First Ephesians of fifth chapter and verse 25. I want you to listen to carefully what the Apostle Paul says here. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. The other verse I want you to keep in mind in Acts twenty and twenty eight that we read to you a while ago that says that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Now we have two statements about the church. Number one, Christ gave his life for the church. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Now you know, and I know, and the whole world knows, that's generally taught that the church is not essential That's basically what's taught at both of these meetings that I've talked to you about tonight in the very beginning, that the church is non-essential. And yet the Bible says Christ gave His life for it. He gave His blood for it. Now, I want you to go with me for just a few minutes the last few hours of Jesus' life upon this earth we talked about this morning. Well, you see, Jesus and Pilate's judgment hall, and just suppose that you had been there. And I'm sure you, you are compassionate people. And if you'd heard them mocking Jesus Christ, no doubt you would have felt sorry for Him because they were ridiculing They were mocking Him. They called Him every mean, ugly name that they could imagine. They even called Him an illegitimate child. Every mean, hateful thing they could imagine, they said. They took their filthy hands. They slapped him in his face. He even walked up and spit in his face. Suppose you'd been standing, no, no doubt you you would have felt sorry for him, and you would ask Jesus, "Why are you letting them treat you like this? Could you deliver yourself?" Jesus Christ said, "Yes, I could call legions of angels from heaven this night. They'd come and kill all these Jews, and there'd be tombstones all over the hills and valleys of Judah. Then why don't you do it, Jesus?" He says, "I'm doing this for the church." Is the church essential? The Lord says, no. Can one be saved outside the church as well as in the church? The Lord says, yes. Let me ask you, you're intelligent. Wouldn't you be confused? Here's a man, let him mistreat him. He says he could deliver himself, but he says he's doing this for the church. And yet at at the same time, he tells you the church is not essential. Wouldn't you be confused? And then finally, they take him to Calvary. They nail his body to the cross. And no doubt your body is chilled. You're seeing this. Realize what awful, terrible pain it is. And you ask him, Jesus, why are you letting him do this to you? They're nailing your physical body to a cross. Why are you doing this? He says, I'm doing this for the church. Is the church essential? He says, no. Can man be saved outside the church? Well, in the church. And the Lord says, yes. Let me ask you, wouldn't you be confused? Wouldn't you be terribly confused? Wouldn't you ask yourself the question, why in the world is this man doing this? He says he could deliver himself. Never, never been a person treated more shamefully and disrespectfully than this. And he says he's doing it for the church. And he says the church is non-essential. And finally they picked that cross up and they it in the hole. And when they did that, they picked the whole world up and dropped the whole world in the hole that day. And the Son of God was left there to hang and to die. And at high noon, God sent a blanket of darkness over the face of the earth. And in the midst of that darkness, you hear the Son of God cry, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" And you can stand it no longer. And then you shout back in that darkness, "Jesus, why are you suffering like this? Can you come down from the cross?" "Yes, I could come down from the cross." "Well, why are you doing this?" "I'm dying for the church." "Is the church essential?" The Lord says, "No." "Can man be saved outside the church?" "What well, in the church?" And the Lord says, "Yes." Let me ask you, my friends, can you believe a thing like that? Well, somebody says, how important is the church? I'll tell you just exactly how important the New church in the, church, the New Testament is. It's just as important as the death of Jesus Christ because he died for the church. But somebody says, Brother Black, the church doesn't save anybody. No, the church doesn't. or We're the church ourselves. But in Ephesians five twenty-three, as the husband is head of the wife, Christ also is head of the church. And it's the Savior of the body. Christ is the, is the Savior of the church. We're the church. And Christ died for us. That's the meaning of it. He gave the last drop of his blood that you and I might be saved. And then you tell me the death is not essential. And he's placed this salvation in the church. He's placed spiritual blessings in the church. He's placed new creatures in the church. And that church is just as essential as the death of Jesus Christ. It's just as essential as the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how essential the church is. And now, can you conceive of a group of men saying, we want to restructure this institution which Jesus Christ died? And we must stop teaching what the Bible teaches about the church. Stop this pattern preaching. Stop teaching that baptism is for the remission of sins. Can you believe that? And then somebody comes along and says, I don't see any harm in that. Why well, don't God's earth would it take to cause you to see harm in anything? If one cannot see harm in that. Well, somebody says, what are you advocating, Brother Black? Well, I'm just simply advocating that we believe the teaching of the New Testament, that Jesus Christ died for His church, and that we should love the church of Jesus Christ to the extent if necessary we should die for it. And not try to rebuild it, not try to restructure not try to tear it down, but just teach the gospel. And what did people do to become members of the New Testament church? Simply this. They heard the gospel, Mark 12, 29. They believed the gospel. And uh, Hebrews 11, 11, 6. They repented of their sins. Hebrews 13, 3. They confessed Christ, Matthew ten thirty two, And they were baptized into Christ, Galatians three twenty seven. They were buried in baptism, Romans 6, 4. They were baptized to have their sins forgiven in Acts two thirty eight. And when they were baptized into the body of Christ, they were in this place where one becomes a new creature, where we enjoy these spiritual blessings, where there's no condemnation if we walk after the Spirit. That's the church of the New Testament. And we should pray every day of our lives that we may always respect the teaching of the Word of God And remember that the Bible warns us over and over and over that there will be false teachers among us who will teach contrary to the teaching of this book. We must inform. We must enlighten the members. The Bible tells us these things are coming and we're experiencing that in the Lord's church this very night. The man that I talked to a few days ago that I told you spoke at Jubilee and I was asking him about it. And the bottom line is this. There was a time... Well, this man was a faithful, dedicated gospel preacher. Now then he's come to the conclusion that all of it is just a denominational institution regardless of what they are or what they believe. If they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I assume, I assume that many of them believe that even the Jews that do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ are just as well off members of the church because one of them taught the only thing we have to do is call God our Father. Any man that calls God his Father, he says is a child of God. So all religious people call God their Father. That takes in people that don't even believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. People that worship uh, Mohammed because they believe in a God. But Mohammed is the prophet of God on earth. So you see, it just embraces everything. And I'm telling you that the Bible condemns that. And you know the Bible condemns that. And let us pray to God that we may study the Bible and learn the truth that we'll not be led astray by these men who have lost their love for the truths of God and these men whose conscience has been seared by embracing false teaching. But if you hear this night, i stated to you the plan of salvation. If you are not a member of the Lord's Church, the greatest thing you could do in your life is come saying, I believe on Jesus Christ. Depending on my sins, I want to confess his name, I want to be baptized in his body, I want to be dedicated to this Christ who died for me. That'd be the greatest thing you could ever do. Or if you know in your heart you've not been faithful to this church and to Christ we've talked about tonight, to come back and say, I want to come home. God is good, God is merciful, He'll forgive you of every sin you ever committed. There's never been a sinner that God would not save if that sinner would come, trust him, believing, and obeying. So if you're subject to your temptation anyway, when invite you to come, why are we standing? Why are we sinning?